This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 30th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. It's not a done deal until all the deals are done, but Brexit is happening, finally. So how does Great Britain's departure from the European Union change myriad relationships for both the EU and Britain? And is there reason to believe more illiberal policies might emerge from a newly independent Great Britain? Cato's Ryan Bourne comments. A lot of people thought even after this referendum went through that uh, the way that uh, Great Britain had behaved following the, the referendum, that this was just not going to happen. What what changed recently that made uh, Brexit a more secure proposition? Well, that's right. And um, this is the kind of third Brexit exit date that we've had, and uh, it looks like third time's a charm. Um, when the, the UK originally voted to leave in the referendum, after an extended period of time of thinking about how the UK government would approach the negotiations, um, they eventually triggered Article 50 in, uh, in, in March 2017, and that gave two years for the, the EU and the UK to negotiate what's described as a withdrawal agreement to kind of settle up on financial contributions outstanding from the UK, decide what both sides wanted to do about citizens' rights in their countries, and to think about the Irish border issue. And the simple truth is that after that, um, both sides did negotiate a withdrawal agreement under Prime Minister Theresa May, but it was completely unacceptable to Parliament both to remain supporters and the strongest supporters of Brexit. It tried to compromise on what Brexit actually was, keep the UK very close to the European Union, um, and both sides rejected that, so it had no parliamentary majority. Now, um, Boris Johnson then became Prime Minister um, as a result of that uh, towards the back end of last year. And he came in with a very clear position, which was that he wanted to leave the European Union with or without a withdrawal agreement and was unwilling to extend the deadline for Brexit um, beyond what was reasonable to for, for him to deliver on that mandate. Um, Parliament tried to bind his hands. Um, they delayed Brexit again. It was supposed to happen on October the 31st. Uh, but eventually they kind of ran out of road and Boris was able to trigger a general election with the support of the other parties. Um, and in that election, he won pretty much a, a, a thumping landslide. He had a very clear position that he wanted to deliver Brexit and the Labour Party uh, kind of didn't really know what its position was, tried to straddle both leave and remain um, uh, uh, voters. And as a result, kind of fell through the middle. So Boris has now got a big majority of 80. And as a result of that, his revised withdrawal agreement has completely sailed through Parliament. It yesterday sailed through the European Union on Wednesday afternoon. And so as a result, Brexit is going to happen. It's going to happen on Friday, the 31st of January at 11pm. Just so we're all clear, how does this change the relationship between uh, Great Britain and the European Union? Well, the immediate consequences are not particularly profound economically. When Brits and Europeans wake up on the 1st of February, they probably won't even notice that the UK has left the European Union. And that's because as a result of this withdrawal agreement, um, both parties then enter what is known as a transition phase, which lasts through, uh, scheduled to last through at the moment to the end of December. And during that phase, 
the UK will remain part of the EU's single market and customs union. Business trading arrangements will remain unchanged. Uh, Britain will still be subject to all the regulations of the European Union, any new regulations that are developed in that period, and free movement of people will by and large continue. Now, this transition phase is supposed to facilitate time for both sides to agree on a a kind of longer-term free trade agreement. Um, And uh, Boris Johnson has been pretty clear. He wants that to be a kind of ordinary free trade agreement. He doesn't want the UK to be part of the EU's economic um, institutions. But uh, that doesn't mean the withdrawal uh, withdrawal date on Friday is not a profound moment because it, what it really kind of represents is Britain's constitutional exit from the European Union. And what that means is that now when negotiating those future economic partnerships, security partnerships and the like, Britain will be doing so as a third country. Um, it won't be a kind of whinging backseat driver in a political club anymore. It will be steering its own destiny and determining what sorts of economic relations it wants with the EU in line with its own interests. So how does this change the internal politics uh, there? I can uh, either just a day or so ago, I heard Nigel Farage saying this will uh, give politicians like me nowhere to hide. That is, you can't. We can no longer hide behind the the dictates or complain about uh, the European Parliament. We can't complain about that anymore. Our fate is our own, and we can't hide behind that. Is that fair? I th- I think that's right. I think Brexit. Um, if you look at most of the surveys of why people voted for it, it was just a basic idea, really, that they wanted the laws that they were governed under to be made by people who were directly accountable to them. So I think even for economists who favoured Brexit, like I did, Brexit was always kind of a bet that the UK's institutions, not least its um, kind of flexible parliamentary democracy, which tends to adapt quite quickly to new situations, would on net tend to deliver better outcomes in a changing world than more and more centralised powers with a kind of Brussels technocracy. Now, whether that's true or not, of course, will take years to assess. It's certainly the case that at the moment, um, British politics seem to be drifting in a more collectivist direction. But I'd argue that that predates um, the Brexit moment uh, kind of entirely. So it's quite difficult to strip out, you know, the natural trends or the political trends that we've seen anyway, and how much they have been caused by Brexit. But of course, in the longer term, this ultimately is a constitutional decision. It doesn't prejudge what sorts of policies the UK adopts in trade and migration and regulation, agriculture, fishing, and a whole range of other things outside. And it's up to economic liberals now to make the case for economic openness in a world which, of course, is becoming more and more protectionist and interventionist. With respect to the internal politics and the uh, classical liberal uh, libertarian policies we might like to see uh, Britain adopt going forward, does do, do any of those become more difficult? Uh, that, is to, that is to say, was the European Union uh, as, an, as an overarching body, were there some pro-liberal uh, policies that uh, Great Britain is, is less likely to have on the books going forward? 
Well, it's certainly true that the the EU is a mixed blessing in regard to classical liberalism. Evidently, the achievement of pretty much free movement of of people, capital, uh, goods, um, uh, and to a lesser extent, services, because the single market in services was never really complete. Uh, that is quite an achievement from a liberal perspective. The the EU had taken steps to kind of restrict countries from engaging in overt state aid. Um, subsidizing um, national champions and, and uh, particular industries. So in that regard, Brexit does mean that the UK has more degrees of freedom, and that brings both uh, risks and opportunities. But then on the flip side, you know, the EU is quite often uh, outwardly protectionist and in probably increasingly going in that direction. And we're kind of seeing that in the way that uh, the EU Commission has attacked the big tech companies, for example. Um, there's a big push for a kind of uh, more tax harmonisation at an EU level, um, and and of course, from a trade perspective, the EU has often imposed um, quite a lot of non-tariff barriers to the importation of goods from uh, particularly poorer countries as well. So. Brexit in itself gives the UK more degrees of freedom. How it uses those freedoms will determine ultimately whether Brexit is a success or not. Uh, now, at the moment, it kind of certainly looks like British politics is drifting in a more interventionist um kind of mercantilistic direction. But I'd argue a lot of that predated Brexit and predated the Brexit vote. So it's quite difficult to disentangle how much of this kind of drift we'd have seen anyway. Um, and how much of it is related to Brexit. What I think we have to separate out here and why this Friday is really important is what it's really about is a constitutional uh, decision mandated by the British people to repatriate a whole range of policy powers. And how those policy powers are used is kind of a secondary question. Uh, Brexit for um Brexiteer economists was always a bet that over time, over the long run, the UK's institutions, its kind of flexible, quite accountable parliamentary democracy would tend on net to deliver better outcomes to ever-changing circumstances than a centralised Brussels technocracy. And whether that's true or not, of course, will take years to assess. Is there any reason to expect that the United States relationship with either the European Union or Great Britain will change? I can remember, I believe it was Barack Obama saying, look, when I pick up the phone, I want to be able to call Europe. And uh, now that's at least two phone calls, isn't it? Yeah, it's certainly true that for a long time, kind of official State Department policy under both um, under both Republican and Democratic presidents has been to favor um, a strong European Union with the UK inside the European Union. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think that the US has often seen the UK as quite a liberalizing voice when it comes to, to economic issues. And obviously, due to quite a close-knit defense and security relationship, it kind of helps to have quite a, a sympathetic uh, a voice in the EU that's sympathetic to American needs and wants. Um I do think it could change the relationship somewhat. Evidently, at the moment, um, there's a big desire on the part of the the Trump administration and Boris Johnson's administration to to make some sort of free trade deal between the UK and the US. Now, how much that will actually const what 
the actual components of that will be, I think, may well be constrained by domestic UK politics, particularly in regards areas such as agriculture. But I think the Trump administration has actually been keen to get that going sooner rather than later. The UK government seems to be in the, in the past few months a bit more reticent because I don't think they want to um, sign a deal that might prejudice the sort of deal that they're able to negotiate with the European Union. So now it seems as if they're prioritising that that EU trade relationship. I think within the EU, um, there are certainly there's certainly lots of kind of voices hostile to what's perceived to be the Anglo-Saxon model of capitalism, and uh, in areas like uh, tech policy. Um, and, and and some issues pertaining to antitrust and competition policy. I think the UK being outside of the EU may make life more difficult on the margin for American companies in dealing with the EU Commission. Ryan Bourne occupies Cato's R. Evan Scharf chair for the public understanding of economics. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>